Section 71 of Greece and Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by April 6090, California, United States of America. The World Story, Volume 4, Greece and Rome. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 71. The Emperor Nero on the Stage. 67 A.D. By S. Baring Gould. From day to day, a more intense longing came over the emperor to exhibit his powers, and that before a discriminating, highly cultured public, his performances at the Juvenalia and before the aristocracy and the mob of Rome did not suffice. What artistic perception had they? The Greeks gave the tone to art. They were the only true aesthetically gifted people on earth. He would therefore submit his performances to their criticism. The applause of the Roman people was purchased, or was given in adulation. That of the Greeks would surely be granted according to judgment, and would be independent. The Greeks, he said, were the only people who had an ear for music, and were the only good judges of him and his attainments. In preparing for the ordeal, he was affected with genuine nervousness. He labored hard to acquire perfect skill, and to give his voice full tone. He practiced with terpness from dinner till late in the night. He lay for hours on his back with a sheet of lead on his chest, and he took emtics. He abstained from bread and fruit. He consumed leeks and oil. On the days before he performed, he took nothing else. He practiced vigorously at dancing, and because he could not kick about his feet with the nimbleness of his master, he had the latter put to death. At length he conceived that his heavenly voice had attained incomparable richness and volume, and that his skill was complete. So he sallied forth to confound the Greeks of Naples in a great concert. A few words may here be given to Nero's personal appearance at this period. When shaved smooth, he affected to resemble Apollo, and to have a voice which would enchant the world as a second Orpheus. He was a little below middle size, without any striking deformity. His body was covered with blotches. His neck was fat and short, and indeed, he was too fleshy and stout to make a figure as Apollo, and his stomach was unduly large and protruding, whilst his legs were small and short. His fair hair he wore cut in stages and arranged in short curls, but during the Greek tour he wore it long, flowing down over his shoulders. He usually wore a light kerchief round his throat as a protection to his voice, and a loose dress ungirded. The most particular account of his vocal powers we derive from Lucian, who, though living long after, no doubt quoted from some contemporary authority. He says that nature had given Nero a voice of very ordinary compass, but that he was bent on straining to reach high notes and growl out bass tones beyond his proper range. When he sang bass, the sound was muffled and like a buzzing of wasps or bees. However, this was helped out or disguised by the accompaniment, and might have passed as a tolerable performance had it been given by anyone else but a sovereign. But when he would reach high notes, like one of the great masters of song, then involuntarily the audience exploded in fits of laughter, however dangerous it was to do so. For he shook himself, gasped for breath, strained himself to the toe-tips to help out his high notes, made contortions like a criminal bound to the wheel, and his naturally red face turned to the color of copper. Thoroughly prepared to electrify the world with his song, 
Nero set off for Neapolis, taking with him the Augustal band of five thousand men, all handsome fellows with long locks, in gay uniform and with gold rings on their left hands, under an officer who received as his wage forty thousand sesteres, about three hundred pounds, per annum. They were divided into bands, the hummers, who buzzed approval, the patterers, who clapped their hands, and the clashers, who more riotously banged earthenware pot covers together, or perhaps kicked the earthenware jars on which the seats of a theatre were raised. He was attended by a thousand baggage carts, the mules all shod with silver, and the drivers dressed in scarlet jackets of finest Canusian cloth. A body of Africans with glittering bracelets mounted on their genets in splendid trappings also attended him. Over the theatrical wardrobe was installed Calvia Crispinella, a noble Roman lady. As for Nero, he never wore the same garment a second time. On reaching Naples, some Alexandrians presented themselves before him. They were the inventors of a musical applause, something like the long-drawn-out amens in fashion in churches nowadays. This so delighted Nero that the men were engaged on the spot and commissioned to drill the Augustals in this new department of applause. Neapolis was crowded, all the great men and small from the neighborhood, with wives and children, had poured into the place to see and hear their emperor sing and act on the boards. It was a new form of sensation altogether. His reception was enthusiastic. He sang for whole days in succession, and hardly allowed himself time for rest. The fever of excitement and desire not to deny the audience any of what they had come to hear drove him onto the stage from his bed or from table. He did not even allow himself the time to take a bath. He had his meals served him in the orchestra, and dined and supped before the spectators, apologizing to them in Greek for the pause, saying he would only drink another drop, and then treat them to something really of the first quality. Whilst he was performing, an earthquake shook the theater, but Nero sang through it all, undisturbed thus evoking deafening cheers. Finally, it appeared as though the gods approved of this amateur dramatic prince, for after the theater was cleared of performers and spectators, shaken by the earthquake, it collapsed without injury to anyone. Nero regarded this as a good omen, and inspired by the muse of poetry, he composed and sang a hymn to the gods, thanking them for the success of this first performance. Intoxicated with the applause, Nero now resolved to visit Greece itself, and make that classic land the judge of his execution, and to strive there with the most famous artists for the crowns given in the world-famous contests. When it was announced that he was actually about to visit Greece, all the states hastened to proclaim that the contests, which were recurrent in successive years at Olympia, Nemea, Delphi, Corinth, should be crowded into the space of time during which the emperor resided on Greek soil, so that he might achieve the distinction of being a peridonicus or victor in the whole circle he started attended by courtiers and court followers of all descriptions and with the cunning of a madman he invited as a favor to attend his triumphal progress all such members of the nobility and senate whom he had marked for death that he might destroy them at his leisure and with more security at a distance from the city he left behind him in rome a freedman helios without definite instructions but empowered to act as regent that was a wonderful expedition. Dio says he started for Greece, not as had his predecessors, Flaminius, Mummius, Agrippa, and Augustus, but as a chariot driver, a leer twanger, a herald, a dramatic performer in tragedies. 
his army that he led consisted not of the augustians only but of so many that as far as numbers went he might have been marching against the parthians but these heroes under nero's banner in place of the weapons of war brandished fiddles and fiddlesticks masks and buskins and the victories won were worthy of the host those subdued were not a philip a perseus an anicius but a tripnus a diordus a parmenes a dancing master a fiddler and a mime parmenes had enjoyed some fame in the time of caius now the old fellow was dragged on to the stage to give nero the opportunity of triumphing over him and a victor of upsetting his statues if this had been all he would have been laughed at for his pains but it was intolerably humiliating for romans to hear of let alone see the reigning emperor enter the lists against other candidates practice his voice go through rehearsals march on to the stage with shaven chin and curly locks and naked with mantle cast back attended by one or two companions only and to see him glower at his rivals attack them contumely bribe the judges and officers keeping order not to turn him out and to show him some favor and all this to win the prize for lear playing when he was pitching away his credit as emperor could a disgrace be greater sulla degraded others nero degraded himself could a victory be more contemptible than one which was crowned with a few olive twigs laurels ivy or fir when he sacrificed for such the civic crown how miserable must have been his appearance when he strutted forward on high buskins and sank his imperial dignity in the dust or when he put on his mask and cast off his sovereignty what more contemptible than the parts which he picked out for himself when he was led about as a blind man simulated a madman acted the part of a woman in travail or of a vagabond he spoke moved endured all like a common strolling player with one exception that he wore when taking the role of a captive golden fetters for he said it did not become a roman prince to wear such as were of iron one day in the olympian games while chariot racing he was pitched out and almost run over nevertheless he was crowned as victor in thanks for which he made a present to the judges of two hundred thousand denarii to the plythian prophetess he gave a hundred thousand because she pronounced an oracle that gratified him but with apollo he was so irate because his oracle was unfavorable that he killed a number of men and flung their carcasses into the cleft out of which the sacred vapor arose in all of those places where there were contests he strove for the prize employing the consular cluvius rufus as his herald who trumpeted forth the announcement the caesar nero has conquered in this contest also and crowns the roman people and the universe he accepted sparta and athens from his visits the laws of lycurgus were not to his taste and therefore he did not go to lacedaemon and he was afraid lest the wrath of the avenging athene should light on him for the murder of his mother if he entered the city sacred to her moreover he shrank from initiation into the Eleusian mysteries from a sense of his unworthiness or rather from fear of the consequences the first greek island on which nero landed was corsira and there he initiated his tour of performances by a song sung before the altar of jupiter cassius at olympia there was no theatre only a hippodrome nero had adapted for his dramatic performances as well as for horse racing before he entered he showed the greatest deference to the judges and assured them he had done all in his power to prepare for the ordeal the result was in the hands of fate 
he requested them as as men of taste and culture to overlook all accidents and consider the general perfection of the performance but though they encouraged him he was afflicted with nervousness or suspicion and thought that any reserve in the empires was a token of disaffection in every particular they he obeyed the rules laid on dramatic performers not to spit or blow the nose and to use his sleeve only for wiping the sweat from his brow nor to seat himself however weary he might be as on one occasion in the course of a tragic declamation he dropped his staff he trembled with nervousness lest through his accident he should forfeit the prize and he could only be pacified when the mime who accompanied him on the sitara swore to him no one had observed it so engrossed were all in the admiration of his voice but he was not content with even the loud voice of cluvius as his herald he competed with others as to who could bellow loudest and having gained the victory in this also he took to announcing his victories himself on reaching corinth nothing would content him but that he must be cut through the isthmus the idea of uniting the ionian and adriatic seas had been muted before and had been entertained by demetrius by caesar and by caius nero undertook the task not from any consideration of utility but to show that he could do what others had failed to accomplish he thought says lucian on that old achaean king who on his expedition against troy passed through the canal he had dug between callius calchus and olus and had cut botia from eubia on darius who had cast a bridge over the thracian bosphorus in his expedition against the scythians and even more on the undertaking of xerxes in its magnitude never equalled besides all this he conceived that he would be giving no grander boon to all greece than by removing the small impediment which interfered with the traffic between greece and italy for however intoxicated and disorderly the capricious power of tyrants may make them there are moments when it does occur to them to do something great by which they may become famous the day on which the first sod was turned was appointed to be a great festival the emperor left corinth where he was then residing at the head of a great train on the morning he issued in gorgeous apparel from his tent first he snatched up the lyre and sang a hymn in honour of Ephitrite and neptune and threw in as well an ode on locothea and melicertes then the praefect of greece handed him a golden spade amidst shouts and the strains of music he turned three clods collected the earth in a basket put it on his shoulder and after having made a magniloquent address to the laborers returned in triumph to corinth as pleased with himself as if he had performed the twelve labors of hercules the work was begun energetically innumerable laborers had been collected on the spot vespian had sent him six thousand sturdy young jews for the purpose and the jails of the empire had been emptied to furnish him with a sufficiency of workmen however after five days of work nero's interest cooled was turned in another direction and the undertaking was abandoned those about his person hastened to find excuses bad omens were easily manufactured to cover the retreat of the emperor from a task begun with such a flourish and so speedily given up a year and a half were spent by nero in greece the expenditure was enormous and to supply his private treasury he had recourse to plundering temples of their stores of precious metals and what was worse to the execution of wealthy men that he might possess himself of their fortunes his progress through greece says dio was like that of a conqueror over a subjugated land 
he plundered it to exhaustion and had men women and children murdered at first he required the children and freedmen of those whom he sentenced to death to give him half what his victims had left and those condemned were allowed to make wills so as to let it appear that they were not put to death for the sake of their fortunes but presently he took to himself either all or the major part and finally he swept the whole into his pocket and by decree banished all the children of his victims from the country but even this did not content him and he had many of them assassinated in their exile it would not be possible to form an estimate of the sums he took from those whom he allowed to live and drew from the roman temples messengers were flying in all directions with no other commissions than sentences of death indeed no letters were passed among people then the post being entirely occupied by the imperial correspondence to make the situation more grimly ludicrous in emulation of flamnius nero had proclaimed the freedom of greece end of section seventy one this recording is in the public domain